This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Biodiversity, sustainability, conservation. These are words thrown around by many people for many different reasons, some more sincerely and knowledgeably than others. When I heard recently that Quarry Hill Botanical Garden in Sonoma was hosting a summer lecture series named in honor of the plant biologist Dr. Peter Raven, who also gave the inaugural lecture of the series, I sat up. Peter Raven, President Emeritus of the Missouri Botanical Gardens is one of the world's leading botanists and leading advocates on behalf of what I deem to be meaningful conservation, sustainability, and biodiversity on our planet. He has been a Guggenheim and MacArthur Foundation Fellow. Time Magazine has called him a hero for our planet. He lobbies the Pope, gives TED Talks, and as far as I can tell, accepts just about any invitation, including mine, to speak to whomever might listen on these topics. Having grown up in the Bay Area, Peter graduated from UC Berkeley, went on to earn his PhD in botany from UCLA, and then taught at Stanford from 1962 to 1971. He became a member of the Cal Academy of Science at age eight, its youngest member ever at that time. For four decades, he headed the Missouri Botanical Garden, an institution he nurtured into a world-class center for botanical research and education and horticultural display. The mission of the garden remains to discover and share knowledge about plants and their environments in order to preserve and enrich life. In his retirement, Dr. Raven has continued to, if not increased, taking to the airwaves, speaking far and wide on the problems of population and consumerism and the ever more urgent need for conservation, preservation of biodiversity and population control. Welcome, Dr. Peter Raven. Delighted to be with you. So that is a long introduction of a long career, and um, I would really like to start with where you started in your personal words on the background of early influences in your life that led to your love of science, plants, natural history? Well, when I was a little boy uh, living in the Richmond District in San Francisco, um, I got the measles. And of course, in those days, you had to go off for two weeks, uh, even though you'd be better in about a week. So I was reading books, and I read a little book on insects called Six Feet got me so excited that as soon as I could get outside, I rushed out into my garden, our garden, and uh, began looking to see what was there. And there was plenty there. And my interest and enthusiasm for it has never stopped. By the way, after I was admitted to the uh, California Academy of Sciences at the age of eight in the student section, they immediately raised the age level to 12. (laughs) But I guess I was all right because they didn't throw me out then. They didn't say, you are hereby dismissed. (laughs) And you said in your own words to me that this uh, interest in natural history really was cultivated in Central California from about that time and that the student section at the Academy of Sciences played a big role from the 1940s on until you entered college. Yeah, it was a really major influence because they it was a social, socially interacting group and at the same time a place where you could learn things, where you'd go on your own volition and uh, you'd learn about nature, you'd meet other people, you'd find friends. It was a very, very nice group. 
And you had some really interesting um, colleagues and mentors in this environment. Talk a little bit about some of your, maybe your most memorable encounters or adventures with that group. Well, when I was in the student section, of course, one of the advantages of it was being in the California Academy of Sciences. It related to the individual departments there. J.T. Howell, Tom Howell, who was uh, Miss Eastwood's understudy for many years and then became curator of botany at about the time I showed up there, was an incredibly encouraging person. I said once how much I enjoyed going in to work as a volunteer after school, and he said, you forgot about the bait. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, I used to leave a chocolate bar for you in the drawer under where you were working. And I'd forgotten all about it. But it gives you an idea of how it was nurturing both to the body and to the soul to be there. I was fascinated by the work of the academic departments at the academy and uh, uh, really encouraged by them, by Tom, by Ed Ross, the curator of entomology, the study of insects there, and by many other people. Then later, of course, I ran into, well, I went on the Sierra Club field to base camp outing to uh, the east side of the east side of the Sierra on Bishop Creek in 1950 when I was 14 years old. I was lucky enough to get a ride with uh, Ledger's none other than Ledger Stebbins, the most famous student of plant evolution in the 20th century, who was that summer moving from Berkeley to Davis, where he was going to found a genetics department. I was 14 years old, and I didn't know who he was, but I soon found out, and he was an encouragement to me for all the rest of his life. When I first went there at the age of 14 in 1950, it was because California Academy curator of botany, Tom Howell, uh, asked to have somebody there would collect the plants in the South Fork of Bishop Creek. The plants of the high Sierra Nevada were not nearly as well known then as they are now, 65 years later. And he wanted to be sure that the pattern of collecting on those base camp outings that he'd started at the beginning of the war and followed out since would be continued, even though he couldn't go that summer. The next year, when I was 15 years old, I was flattered to be invited back as a camp naturalist, take people on nature walks and show them the wonderful plants and animals of the high Sierra uh, and that was a real thrill. And then gradually, as I came to all the base camps, I was I took over a commissary as well. I had many exciting times mm -hmm. uh, adding to the knowledge of the floor of the Sierra as the camps moved uh, up and down all the way from south of Mount Whitney to, uh, well, through another Sierra Club outing, uh, Donner Pass, where, by the way, my mother's family came over in 1846 with the Donner Party. Mm -hmm. So I was able to add quite a bit to what Tom Howell had and Carl Sharsmith of San Jose State had contributed earlier. And now we have a good knowledge of what plants are there in that exciting region. And you, in fact, in work, which I'm guessing took place when you were working um, on faculty at Stanford, were one of the earliest with your colleague Axelrod to describe what is now very commonly known as the California Floristic Province, one of the biodiversity hotspots on the planet. Um, what I'm, I'm hearing, you know, I, I'm also familiar with your work, at least in passing on the coevolution of butterflies and plants. There's clearly this parallel love of of insects and the insect world and their relationship to plants. What pushed you towards botany over entomology? 
I was very excited by the fact that Jepson's manual, a single book, described all the kinds of plants that I was going to find in California and that I could tell what they were and I could tell when I'd found one in a place where it wasn't known yet. For insects, that's much more difficult. And anyway, I love the order of having a book that really described the plants. Uh, But when I was standing in registration line at Berkeley for my senior year, for my junior year, when I had to declare a major, I could have gone either way. I went into plants because I had moved in that direction a lot in the years before. And because I thought there was a greater need, there were more entomologists around. You went on from Berkeley to UCLA to get your PhD, then on faculty at Stanford, then on to the Missouri Botanical Garden. Talk about that sort of point of decision. I had a fabulous time at Stanford. It was an excellent department. And Paul Ehrlich, with whom I worked very closely then, is still one of my very best friends and actually is giving the next lecture in the series at Quarry Hill. Um, And... uh, the, uh, my other colleagues there, you know, I really learned. It was very good to have a general department of biological sciences where all the different parts of the sciences came together and where it was expected that you would be able to give good reasons for what you were doing uh, in the whole field of biology. Why did you pick your particular field? That hones your skills very beautifully. And uh, Paul and I came on to uh, coevolution through being interested in plants and the caterpillars that fed on them, he'd noticed that uh, the uh, Edith checker spot, the Bay Area subspecies of the Edith checker spot, which he was studying from the standpoint of populations on the wonderful Jasper Ridge Preserve above Stanford, was switching its host plants from uh, owl's clover uh, to uh, a little tiny plantain with very inconspicuous flowers, wind-pollinated and he said, that's just amazing. I can't understand that. I said, no, they're very close relatives. He didn't really realize that. That set us out on a search through all the ample literature on butterfly larval feeding habitat, habits and uh, put together the picture that led to our devising the um, idea and theme of coevolution uh, fairly early in my career at Stanford. As to why we moved to Missouri, uh, my first wife had died, and I'd remarried, and it and it seemed good to uh, uh, get off to a new start. That was part of it. I wanted something broader than a university. Wonderful as universities are, one tends to be uh, working mainly in one's own particular cubbyhole or department with limited social life and, and all the rest uh, to that more or less immediate group of uh, students. For example, I never realized that Wallace Stegner, who's probably my favorite author, was on the faculty at Stanford when I was there. I do remember a wonderful series of Shakespeare plays and other things, but uh, I wanted to do something broader, and it it was appealing to do that, to be the head of an institute that I'd heard a lot about because I had teachers who'd graduated from here, from Washington University in the garden before, and associates, and One of my colleagues at Stanford, the late Richard Holm, had graduated from here. I'd visited several times, so it was a very familiar place to me. And so I guess summing up, I just wanted to enlarge my scope 
and see what I could do for the institution here. You had a 40-year career taking the Missouri Botanical Gardens from what it was, which was, which was good, but certainly not the destination research organization and institute it is today. Talk about, I mean, it's a, it's a really long career. So when you look back at it now in retirement and um, moving on with some of that work, uh, what, what, what are you most proud of? Well, I think although the herbarium and library here were always uh, global, and it is the oldest botanical garden in the United States. It was found opened in 1859, and uh, in 1885, our founders started the relationship with Washington University that's been so important in our training hundreds of Ph.D. students through the years. I knew that uh, for the garden to grow, it had to be really well-rooted in St. Louis, so I knew we had to do things of interest to people. St. Louis is a very generous and supportive community, but I knew we had to expand the programs, expand the membership, uh, build new features in the garden, only a little bit of which was actually in cultivation at that point. And in doing so, interest and involve the people. We got the membership up from about 1,800 to about 12,000 in the first 10 years. and. Now it's about 45,000. It was about 40,000 when I retired um, and, and deepened the interest. But then that led to what I think was the most important thing that I actually accomplished here with the help of very, very many other people, and that was actually getting a certain degree of tax support for the garden. And that funding now contributes about uh, $12 million a year out of the garden's $40 million budget. So you can see it's uh, really indispensable. And in the research department, when you, again, look back over your 40 years, mm. what what do you take away as being the most proud of having accomplished in the research? The garden was 112 years old when I got here and had a substantial herbarium and an even more substantial library uh, Looking back, I was surprised to realize that the garden had never had a staff member collect plants in South America, Africa, or Asia. So as the research staff grew from several people to about 50 by the time I retired, about 50 PhDs, uh, we had started robust programs in Ecuador, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Peru, Bolivia, and stimulated important botanical activities in the southern cone of South America, Chile, Argentina, uh, Paraguay, Uruguay, southern Brazil. Uh, we'd also started a very robust program of which we're very proud in Madagascar, which I came to thinking about the distribution of plants. The garden now has about 125 people working in Madagascar, all but one of whom are natives of the country. And Madagascar is about 90% deforested and just filled with very important plants that are very distantly related to anything else and lots and lots and lots of new species. When I started us there in 1974, um, I thought uh, that it was pretty well known. The French had been there a long time. They had about 8,500 kinds of plants there. But we now estimate that there are about 14,000 and remember, we're running around in the last little fragments of forest. We're working with individual villages, 13 of them, to cultivate and reforest areas around them. 
we're working with the Washington University School of Business to help to retrain them to find sources of income other than just cutting down the nearest trees. And in general, all, well, all those areas have been declared national reserves by the government of Madagascar. So we're trying our best to make a really substantial contribution in what is clearly one of the poorest nations on Earth and one of the most interesting biologically. The island, by the way, is about the size of California plus Arizona put together. It's a very big place. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're joined by Dr. Peter Raven, President Emeritus of the Missouri Botanical Gardens and one of the world's leading botanists and advocates for conservation and biodiversity. He joins us today to share his passionate belief in the urgency of our ecological state. We'll be back after the break. Stay with us. If you're just joining us, I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We began our conversation with Dr. Peter Raven, President Emeritus of the Missouri Botanical Gardens, one of the leading botanical research institutions in the country whose mission is to discover and share knowledge about plants and their environments in order to preserve and enrich life. Since retiring in 2011 after 40 years at the gardens, Dr. Peter Raven continues to advocate tirelessly for the importance of conservatism and conservation. Welcome back. Is it fair to say, um, you know, when I think back on the, the mission of the Missouri Botanical Garden to discover and share knowledge about plants in order to preserve and enrich life, when I when I'm listening to you describe these experiences, sending you know building up this core of collectors and and researchers and scientists to go to other places and help collect not only data but you know living and herbarium specimens of these plants, is this experience running around in this last little fragment of forest part of what has fueled your kind of post-retirement urgency to talk about these bigger issues? You know, and uh, when I started out, nobody was really thinking about conservation. People were thinking about wolves and bears may have gotten shot, you know, the last grizzly bear in California in the 1920s, and we want to protect them. But nobody was imagining that large numbers of species were becoming extinct as more and more habitat was brought under cities and cultivation. There are three times as many people in the world now as there were when I was born in 1936. We're adding 250,000 people net each day, and we're headed for 9.8 billion in 34 years at the middle of the century, and we're in a runaway consumption uh, uh, frenzy, uh, just getting hold of as much as we can. Conservation really came in in the 60s, was marked by Earth Day in 1970 when 10% of the people in the United States came out. But international conservation, the idea that the world was losing a lot of its stability, didn't come about until probably started with the Stockholm Conference on uh, the environment in 1972. Uh, So it's a fairly recent thing, and the garden has adopted that as a standard has gone along with it and has contributed to conservation both individually and broadly as it possibly could. And of course, starting in about mid-80s, I began uh, giving speeches, as you said at the beginning, to as many people who would listen 
about overpopulation, overconsumption, the inability of the world to support us all, uh, the fact that 200 million people have been killed in wars in the last 200 years and we're well stocked with atomic weapons right now, and the need for appreciating people around the world and loving them and getting to understand them and building a kind of a, an equal stability together, that is such an overwhelming uh, urge that it's inspired me to do as much as I could in as many places as I could for a very long time. Mm-hmm. It, it's been very moving to follow the trajectory of this, um, your language, your use of language throughout these talks, moving from the specifics of, of plant coevolution and moving on to now where so much of what you discuss involves social justice and, as you just mentioned, love, that if we don't move beyond thinking just about our own immediate comfort and um, convenience and move to thinking about the comfort and long-term stability of other people, we are, we are kind of doomed. And Our civilization just won't work. Yeah. The website of the Global Footprint Network, which is the think tank located, by the way, in Oakland, with the website is at Footprint Network, shows just how far over the limit we are. And in fact, last Monday, we passed what they call Global Overshoot Day, which is when we've used up all the sustainable productivity of the world and moved on to eating into the rest that might otherwise have supported us continually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would be a very good website for people to look at if they want to get a sense of this. But what it indicates is that talk about making America great again or anything like that is an impossibility since it only can be carved out of the rest of the world and we're not an island floating around somewhere in space. We're one of many nations that have to interact sustainably if we're to find a common uh, foundation for our civilization and the things we cherish going on into the future. So I really want to end on your hopes. You, you clearly do not travel across the globe, reprimand politicians, exhort your audiences to hear you without some level of hope. So looking back, you're, you're soon to be 80, I take it. I am 80. You are 80. You are 80. And um, that's a big milestone. And you look back over this long career, interesting work and, and people and plants and insects. And what are your greatest hopes for the coming That people will always realize that doing things themselves is of supreme importance, that they should never lose faith in the fact that living conservative lives that are sustainable is very important, and particularly in a country like the United States where we're wallowing in abundance, even though there are so many poor and unfortunate people here, we need to know that and we need to practice it, and it does make a difference. I've been very proud of uh, California's programs. Uh, Jerry Brown, by the way, was a classmate of mine at St. Ignatius High School in San Francisco. And I've been very proud of of the programs in California to try to really make substantial steps to conserve, to find sustainability and all the rest. And I think mentioning of Jerry brings me back to my overall point, which is people can be excited and can adopt 
great themes, but it depends on ethics, morality, can be stimulated by religion, which is one reason I've stayed so active at the Vatican for the last 25 years, can be stimulated by religion and can really inspire us to understand that there's something much deeper to the world than just how much we can get and how much we can consume. And great leaders have made big differences, St. Francis of Assisi, Gandhi, uh, P.W. Botha, uh, many people have made great contributions to uh, sustainability, to changing our way of living, to changing our way of thinking about the world. And I think it'll take no less than that to really stimulate people to get to the proper goal. But I'm hopeful that if everyone keeps doing what they can individually, if they spread the word, if they vote, if they think about the world as a reality and not as a fantasy, that we may get we may get a much softer landing than we possibly could do otherwise. And then finally, having worked at one of the the leading botanical gardens in the country and seeing what you can accomplish there, what role do you see public gardens or gardens of any size playing going forward? Gardens are centered more and more, first of all, are centers of conservation, which they got into heavily starting in uh, the 1980s. But um, they're also increasingly centers of sustainability, giving demonstrations about people who can learn their lives. A particularly important new trend in gardens is using them as places to teach people about agriculture. There's a very deep divide in California, obviously, between rural areas and urban areas with relatively little understanding. And yet, when you think about botanical gardens are one of the uh, agencies that could fill the role, that could help to teach people about agriculture, that could help to teach people better, more sharply about our dependency on the earth and the productivity of the earth and its sustainability. And that's a very important role that they can play zoos and natural history museums fall into the same category and it's uh we've long since passed the time to sit around with traditional programs and we've gotten to the time where we need more proactive programs pushing forward more rapidly with the support of the general public and uh inspiring people to do better dr peter raven it has been an honor thank you so much for joining us today thank you it was a great pleasure Dr. Peter Raven, President Emeritus of the Missouri Botanical Gardens, is one of the world's leading botanists and advocates for conservation and the protection of our remaining biodiversity. A lecture series named in his honor at Quarry Hill Botanical Garden in Sonoma hosts its final lecture in the series with fellow evolutionary biologist Dr. Paul Ehrlich of Stanford University this coming Saturday, August 20th at 5.30 p.m. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Sarah Bohannon. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit MyNSPR.org. For more information, including information on the Quarry Hill Lecture Series, please visit JewelGarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.